This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast today is brewmaster for Allagash Brewing in Portland, Maine, Jason Perkins. Welcome to the podcast, Jason. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Cool. We're up here in Maine uh, enjoying a nice morning at the Brewer's Retreat at our annual uh, shindig with some uh, some awesome folks. And Jason will be brewing later today with a small group of folks on a homebrew system. And it uh, should be kind of fun. Totally. Looking forward to it. And, uh, but before we start the conversation, as the uh, brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. For 25 years, G&D has led the way on innovative solutions that match their brewing customers' immediate and future needs. G&D backs every project they touch and provides service second to none. Contact G&D Chillers today for your chiller sizing needs at 1-800-555-0973 or reach out online at gdchillers.com. Also, SS Brewtech founders started with a very clear goal to advance brewing equipment design, performance, and quality to the very highest standards in the industry. The SS Brewtech team draws upon strong functional backgrounds in brewing science, mechanical engineering, industrial design, supply chain, and manufacturing. SS Brewtech has the people and skill sets you want and expect from your supplier of pro brewing equipment. Head over to ssbrewtech.com for more information on their brew houses and brewing gear. In fact, well, actually, we're using some uh, SS Brewtech equipment when we brew out here at the Brewer's Retreat. And nice. uh, it's super nice having them clean out those fermenters and have them all prepped. And they've got a little line of them with the glycol chiller uh, all set up in, uh, you know, in our uh, brewing room up. Today. Awesome. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Uh, so, Jason, let's talk about uh, uh, some of the stuff that uh, Allagash is known for, and uh, which is primarily brewing uh, uh, beers in a Belgian tradition um, with your flagship beer, Allagash White. Tell me a little bit about the genesis of White. Uh, it's one of those beers that uh, year over year, brewer after brewer talks about how influential that beer was on their own beer development and how it uh, helped them think about beer in a different way. Um, tell me about how you all think about Allagash White and uh, how you all describe you know the goal that you were going for in designing and building that beer sure yeah happy to i mean you know so we you know we started in 1995 uh and you know rob todd started the company by himself and you know that was the first beer that he made and it's still to this day our flagship beer and um you know it's it we always like to point out that you know for so many years you know i started in 1999 uh and for so many years 95 through uh, you know 2006 7 8 you know, it just was. It wasn't a beer that 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 sold very well, to be frank and honest yeah, with you. Yeah. Especially in the first ten years. Um, you know, I don't know if it was a beer before its time or or what the deal was, but it was just a different. It was a different atmosphere in craft beer back then. Um, and you know, consumers were a little confused by the cloudiness of it and sure, the, sure. the you know spicy notes and those kind of things. Um, and so you I know, talked to you know Keith who uh, who started Blue Moon tells absolutely. the same exact story. Like yeah. nobody understood that beer and uh, it almost didn't make it. Same kind of thing. Like you know, it was just more flavor than people expected out of beer, huh? Yeah, exactly. And we you know you you know every event we did back then, uh, you know beer dinners, brew fests, etc. It was a constant like answering questions about you know right. what's basically what's wrong with your beer uh and and educating people about it and so uh it's been really wonderful to see the growth of that beer over yeah, the years yeah. um tell me a little bit about uh you know one of the challenges in that kind of style um you know is actually something that brewers are even facing and brewing more uh contemporary cutting edge i shouldn't call them cutting edge but uh, uh you know new styles like mm -hmm. uh, and that's you know creating haze stability in yeah. a beer you know especially with white beers um you know, for a long time, you know, there was the old turn the keg upside down trick and sure. flip it over right before you tap it in order to, you know, get that, uh, you know, uh, matter back into kind of suspension. Um, over the years, what have you all, you know, how have you all managed that and uh, worked to build a more haze stable beer uh, that's not a New England style IPA? Yeah, yeah it's it's a great <laughs> question. And, you know, I'll do my best to not go to too far down no, the haze good. rabbit hole here. But, That's all right. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think, you know, when it's you interesting it, that the subject can apply across styles like that. It, yeah. it really is. And I think especially it's a little, a bit easy to, to chuckle now that, you know, when, when, you know, 15 years ago, 
people didn't want to drink our beer because it was hazy and too hazy and you know just look at where we are now it's pretty it's kind of comical right sure sure um but you know really to make to make a beer clear is actually pretty easy i mean it takes some some brewing scale and it takes some equipment of course um to make a beer hazy is also pretty easy to make it stable haze is the hard one sure stable controlled consistent you know, so we, we're firm believers and have been for a long time to have, uh, it's not just hazy, it, they're hazy, our beer has a specific specification um, that we can read with the equipment we have to, so it's a consistent, you know, analytical number really for yeah, haze stability yeah. uh, and we keep that within a very strict spec. We have lots of equipment at the brewery to monitor it and keep it in spec. Uh, so it's not just hazy, it's consistent haze, it's, it's, it's a specific number and so on. And how we achieve that is it's hard to answer in a quick answer because it's a number of we've things. Got, we've got time. <laughs> um, it's, it's a whole bunch of things. We still sure, do sure. store our kegs upside down. Oh, okay. Um, that's, that's like not <laughs> – that's one small component of it. Sure, uh, sure. In, in it really. But, you know, we use – you know, the raw material input is certainly very important. Yeah. Um, using uh, specific you know, kinds of wheat or uh, – We use unmalted white wheat okay. uh, and malted red wheat. Uh, and we've just found that a certain specification, a certain percentage of each of those is yeah. important yeah. to keep that haze. We also use oats as well. Um, and then we, we uh, you know, one of the biggest improvements we've had over the years is the operation of a centrifuge. Yeah. You know, for years we didn't use a centrifuge and it was more difficult then. Uh, now with a centrifuge, we, uh, we really have the ability to, uh, between speed of flow rate into the into the centrifuge or the speed of the spin, the, how fast the centrifuge yeah, itself is yeah. spinning, you know, what that can do, it gives us real good control over the kind of particulates that we keep in solution. Um, you know, cause really it's just the centrifuge is really just gravity. Right. Um, so we can alter the amount of residence time the beer has in the, you know, the, the bowl centrifuge bowl and, and affect, uh, the output of that afterwards. Yeah. Are there any specific, now you mentioned particulate size and I think that's kind of the key here. You know, you were looking for smaller particulates in that suspension and pushing some of the bigger ones out because mm-hmm. those larger particles that may be in suspension will what drag, uh, drag everything out. Yeah. I mean, I think some, one common misconception is that, you know, haze stability is achieved through yeast and actually yeast can actually be you know, your enemy yeah. because yeast is a fairly large particle um, in, in comparison to some of the low molecular weight proteins that we're actually looking for. Okay. So, um, you know, we do, our Allagash White is packaged with yeast in draft form, pretty low yeast counts yeah. in bottle form because it's bottle condition. It's about 2 million cells per milliliter. Um, but, you know, the majority of that haze stability comes from low molecular weight protein. Yeah polyphenol reactions more than it does yeast okay are there any specific mashing uh, regimens you use to try to uh you know push uh you know the yeah that type of uh, matter into it we've we we do a fairly simple mash regimen okay. with that beer uh we start you know at um you know we're still we're we're we're, we're american brewers so we're fahrenheit still <laughs> uh, so right. we're <laughs> Uh, we're, we're, we're mashing in around 149, uh, Fahrenheit. And then we, we bring it up to what we call a starch rest at 162 Fahrenheit. Okay. Uh, And we found some success in, in, uh, in with that added starch rest for our haze stability over time. Yeah. That's cool. Um, talk to me a little bit about yeast, you know, obviously in Belgian styles, which you guys are known for, you know, that kind of yeast expression is, is pretty important. Um, how, what kind of flavor from yeast that you're using are you, are you looking for? And, uh, you know, what's some of your uh, strategy in, uh, in getting those kinds of flavors out of it? Sure. That's a great question. Yeah. I mean, we, 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 um, you know, we kind of think about ourselves, I guess, as a, you know, a yeast forward brewery, yeah, you know, yeah. lots of breweries call themselves hop forward breweries, right? Or, uh, but for us, um, you know, yeast is really, uh, you know, very influential part sure. of the beer profile. So, um, because of that, we use a lot of different strains. Um, you know, at any given, any given random week at the brewery, we probably have three or four strains going at a given wow. time and in a given year, you know, for beers we release once a year, we'll, you know, tack on a bunch more for that. And, you know, so each yeast is kind of selected for specific flavor profiles that we're trying to achieve in the beer. Um, But, you know, uh, that said, 90% or so of our beer volume is our one house yeast. Same yeast strain we use for Allagash White is also what we use in in triple. And those two beers take up a 
good chunk of our overall yeah. production. It's one thing that's really interesting uh, for with yeast is, you know, just that. So those are two two beers, Allagash White and Allagash Triple. They use the same yeast strain, but the flavors that those that yeast produces sure. in those two beers are very different. Yeah, um, yeah. and we actually just we just brewed a beer. Um, we we just released in our store this weekend um, called Noble Blonde. It's just a, a very small scale. It's effectively like a Kolsch in a way because yeah. we use our same house yeast strain and ferment at fifty degrees Fahrenheit over a really slow period huh. of time, and it's pretty remarkably lager like. Um, so it, I, I, it's just so fun to taste the flavor differences you can get. Yeah, you know, um, you know, went between a low temperature fermentation and a higher temperature fermentation, and between white and triple, it's a you know, a 5% beer and a 9% beer and, and, you know, those higher alcohol fermentations just produce a whole different range of, of esters. Yeah. What, uh, what's the, some of the uh, flavor and sensory difference? Sure. So white is more, uh, you know, kind of, uh, clove ethyl butyrate. So, you know, pineapple juicy yeah. fruity type stuff. Um, whereas on the triple, it's much more, uh, ethyl hexanoate. So, tr- uh, honey, um, melon, um, some passion fruit so you know still still fruit esters for right, sure right but you know a little bit spicier in the white um versus a little bit kind of intensely uh like passion fruity and the in and honey in the triple yeah now, is that all a function of yeast stress uh from the alcohol environment yeah or i'm sure it other? is yeah. uh you know the temperature of those the fermentation temperature of those two beers are pretty similar okay we we allow the triple to rise a little bit more in temperature towards the end of fermentation to really kind of let it finish strong but um but yeah i think it's just you know sometimes stress isn't good for humans but sometimes it's nice for yeast uh sure sure uh aster profiles um you know i found uh you know particularly in belgian beers with uh, some of the other belgian brewers that i've talked to um you know that they uh produce certain beers with yeasts that uh, people may not expect them to be using mm-hmm. um that uh there's more of a range in these yeasts and you, you kind of mentioned that with white and uh, triple are there other uh kind of yeasts that uh, uh you use in contexts uh that uh, may be unexpected like that I don't, I think that's, those are the ones that come to mind originally for me. Um, you know, yeah, we just, like I said earlier, just a whole bunch of different strains, but they tend to be for the most part, um, we're, we're talking Belgian strains. We've have brewed a couple lagers in our history, but usually we, we, we screw them up in some other way by, (laughs) so like we just released a beer that's a 60% blend of, uh, a lager fermented beer and a 40% blend of a Saison yeast fermented beer. Uh, we have another beer that's a Pilsner, but Britannomyces is added to it. So, yeah. you know, it's our way of making, uh, you know, delicious low ABV lagers, but still throw our little, our spin on them. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Um, you know, are there some uh, some yeasts that you've uh, started working with that you uh, particularly enjoy and, uh, you know, have gotten excited about? And, and how does that process look when you are thinking about, you know, you know since you're a yeast forward brewery, as you say, uh, understanding how these yeasts actually behave in these beers is, uh, you know, a little more of a laborious process. What For is, sure. What does that test process look like, and what do you find? What have you found on some of these yeasts through that test process? Yeah. So we, our testing process really, for the mo- for the most part, starts with our pilot kind of program we have at the brewery which i can explain but maybe sometimes before that if if there's a especially if we're trying to isolate a yeast from say local fruit or from the local environment that testing will start in the lab um on a bench top just to see if those yeasts can even survive right, a fermentation because right. so if we found you know so many times where we've harvested a yeast off a of fruit or from you know you know uh, up in the in the middle of the woods somewhere yeah. or something and you know it looks great on day one and then as soon as alcohol comes into play it, it yeah. just doesn't yeah. doesn't work so that's where we'll kind of play with those really experimental yeasts is on the yeah. bench top in the lab with just some some white wort um so uh beyond that like i said we have this pilot program which we've had for well over a decade now that's really kind of continues to evolve as we grow. Um, and it's a program where any employee at the brewery can submit an idea, yeah. a concept for a beer to the program, um, even if they don't have any real kind of homebrew background or brewing background. Right. And it's so it's intentionally set up with the barriers to entry to be very low so that, you know, someone can submit an idea that says, 
uh, you know, I don't actually know what ingredients I need, but right. I want this flavor profile. I want this kind of characteristic and the pilot team will help them get at that. So that's at the scale where we can start working with different yeast strains. Yeah. So this is a, you know, basically a 10 gallon batch of beer. So it's a fancy homebrew system we had designed <laughs> for us by a local uh, fabricator. Um, and so that's where we really we'll try a lot of those yeasts out. Yeah. Uh, I will say that there are some times where we even decide, because you know, we can learn so much on that 10 gallon size. Sure. But sometimes things act differently yeah. when you brew it on a larger system. So we will occasionally, um, you know, this is often crazy for people to hear who aren't involved in a, in a larger brewery, but we'll brew a 25 or 30 barrel batch of beer that we intend to never sell. Um, huh. We don't do it often, you know, we do because <laughs> we try to crazy. avoid it sure. if we can, but we've just found for us to hit the quality standards we want Yeah. Um, for some beers. And it's usually finicky yeasts or weird ingredients that, you know, some ingredient we're adding, you know, because on a pilot scale, you can add uh, a bag of chopped up rhubarb, you know, in a little sure, sparge bag, sure. but try to put that to work on a 30 barrel system. <laughs> right, it's a whole different right. thing. So, um, so we will, you know, a couple times a year brew what we call a dump batch. Huh. Um, so we'll, we'll brew it, ferment it out completely, package a small amount of it in whatever package we plan on putting it in cans, yeah. bottles, or kegs. And then the rest gets dumped and it's kind of crazy, but, um, we have, we have found that it's kind of important for beers that are a little bit funkier and weirder to work with. How do you convince the CFO that you uh, need to brew another one of those? Well, I mean, luckily, <laughs> uh, it's a you know, luckily, you know, with Rob as the owner and our yeah. only owner of the brewery, uh, very engaged in the brewing process. You know, certainly, I had to get him to sign off on this concept as well. Um, and you know, it again, this sounds crazy, but in a given year, we make about a hundred thousand barrels of beer a year. Yeah. You know, 30 barrel batch is a bummer for sure. I don't mean to undermine that, but yeah. uh, as a percentage, it's 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 a worthwhile uh, loss for us, I guess, is the way we look at it. Fair enough. Makes sense. Uh, you know, and not everything that you do is purely commercially motivated. I mean, obviously, you have to produce beer that people want to buy at a significant scale to you know support the economy of the brewery. You know, but that also you know tends to fund some uh, some smaller passion projects. One of those that uh, that you all have become very well known for is your spontaneous beer program. Spontaneous mm -hmm. beer obviously has grown very hot over the last couple of years. Uh, you know, in the United States, but uh, you guys have been making it for for quite a long time now. And uh, have learned a lot along the uh, along the way. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about that, um, the genesis of that, and uh, uh, you know, how that program has developed for you guys. Yeah, for sure. So when that that project started in two thousand seven, um, and you know we had you know Rob and I had had some conversations about it previously. Um, if I'm being honest, I kind of thought they were just pipe dream joking conversations. Um, but, you know, as a brewery that started in 1995 in Belgian style focused um, and, you know, doing even at that time fairly innovative things with new beers and barrel aging projects and so on. In some ways, uh, doing spontaneous fermentation felt like a next logical step. Right. Because it's such a distinctly, well, especially used to be distinctly Belgian thing yeah um but honestly i you know to do that to 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 we really felt like it needed you needed to build a building and you need to build a cool ship it's not like you could stick a bucket of wort in the parking lot and <laughs> right, and and right. have that be your test batch you really need the 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 environment so i i honestly didn't think we'd do it i mean we were a much smaller brewery then um you know our our budgets were small etc um and um, you guys, can I drop the F bomb on this podcast? Go for okay. it. Okay. So everyone it, listening it, to this should be 21 <laughs> and up. I mean, obviously. So right? I just to drive the point home, uh, my, the way I mem remember it is Rob came in one day and said, fuck it, let's put in a cool shot. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's my distinct member memory yeah, of yeah. And around August of 2007. Yeah. You know, he'll tell the story that there in his mind, he really started formulating this idea when he did, um, this trip with, uh, a group of American brewers, Sam Conjoni, Tom, Tommy Arthur, Adam Avery, Vinicius so all went around uh, Belgium. Yep. Um, and I think that was in either 06 or 07. And that's kind of when he came back from that trip and said, let's do it. But that's my memory, just him coming in the brewery and saying, yeah. let's do it. And we, we had it built and installed by 
um, the brewing season, which for us is November, uh, December. So it happened quite quickly. Yeah. Had a lo- local manufacturer make us a cool ship and we started making those beers in 2007. And really the idea was, um, you know, at the time, you know, you mentioned that spontaneous fermentation is a lot more common in the U.S. now. It certainly is. But go back to that time in 2007 and really the conventional wisdom at the time and even it written in some books uh, was that you couldn't make lambic style spontaneous fermentation beers unless you were within some magical radius of Brussels, Belgium. Right. And, um, you know, talking to some of the brewers of lambic beer, they didn't necessarily themselves believe that, but that was kind of the conventional wisdom. So that was our, we started the project in 2007 very much as a, as an experiment. Like, yeah. can we make, you built a whole building and a cool ship with a dream and a prayer that, uh, exactly. you could actually make this work. Yeah. And of course we don't call it Lambic, but you know, it's very much modeled after that, sure. that, sure. that historical style. Um, and then, you know, it was really at least a year you before just we had a traditional, idea. traditional, uh, you know, kind of Lambic recipe or. Yeah, really follow pretty closely what, I mean, yeah. every brewery over there does a little differently, but, sure. you know, it's f- about 40% unmalted wheat, um, 60% Pilsner, aged hops, the turbid mash, long boil, yeah, uh, fermented ex- and aged exclusively in oak barrels for two to three years. Like, so very much following that, that yeah. kind of tradition there. Yeah. Um, you know, the art uh, and beauty of, uh, of uh, spontaneous beer, Lambic-inspired beer, is, uh, you know, is generally in the blend. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me a little bit about that process. Um, you know, what you've learned from batches brewed at different times of the year, what they've, you know, what kind of range or variability the, the environment and the conditions may have mm-hmm. on some of these, uh, uh, how, uh, you know, just the different fermentations that start happening in, in each of these barrels sure. uh, impact some of those flavors. I'm really curious, I mean, because you've now got quite a few, more than a decade of blending experience, sure. take, talk, you know, tasting some of these beers and figuring out how to make them uh, sing as a, uh, finished beers. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, you know, I think, with a process, with all wild beer in general, but especially spontaneous fermentation beers, you know, there we do everything we can to control what we can control. Yeah. You know, um, you know, our barrel room temperature is is controlled. Our our barrel selection, raw material selection. We're very specific on the time of year and the temperature and the overnight we use and so on. But there's a lot out of our control, and so the final quality control piece is blending. Like that's the final kind of. equalizer if you will um so you know what we found is there in terms of you know time of year control we've short we've tightened up the window in which we brew yeah Uh, and we really look at overnight temperatures as uh overnight low temperatures as kind of a um our main kind of yeah uh variable so we're targeting you know roughly 25 fahrenheit to 38 Fahrenheit for okay. an overnight low. We used to be higher. We used to go up towards closer to 50 even uh, for an overnight low and just found really poor quality. Okay. Not every single batch, but enough that, you know, when you right. when a beer takes two to three years, you know, <laughs> yeah. you start to get a little superstitious because it's just not, it's a bummer to go yeah. two years yeah. and then yeah. find out it's not worth it. If you can narrow that range a little bit and, and tighten it up and get more consistent uh, positive yeah. results, it certainly makes sense. Yeah. Um, so we, 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 we're seeing more consistency in that way, but we still, I mean, we'll still have a single batch, you know, we, we fill, um, mostly punch in so large, you know, 400 to 500 liter oak barrels. So we'll fill, you know, uh, you know, maybe six of those for every batch. Uh, and, uh, we might find even, even same exact batch, we'll find one out of those six. That's just astronomically different than the others. Really? There's enough, just, there's just enough that's slightly out of your control that that's yeah. going to happen. So of course, what do you chuck that up to though? I honestly, it's got to be the barrel conditions. Okay. Um, which we, you know, we do our best to monitor that, but yeah. you know, we are reusing these barrels, uh, cleaning them very extensively and so on. But you know, that's, it's gotta be, yeah. it's gotta be the piece. Um, have you guys gone in and, uh, had the lab look at, uh, you know, what those, uh, microbial colonies look like in the good ones versus the the weird ones and uh, found some, you know, what's doing that or. Uh? Yeah, they, we've done, certainly done some work on that. You know, we, uh, we actually luckily had some work done for us by a UC Davis grad student about 10 years ago now um, that did some pretty, pretty cutting edge work on it yeah. that really showed that our kind of 
microbial progression was very similar to some studies that were done on Cantillon beer, yeah, which is kind yeah. of interesting. Uh, there were some differences, but there was lots of similarities. Uh, it's challenging um, work to do because it's such a cocktail of microorganisms sure, in there. Sure. So it's hard to really get your head around what's causing what particular flavor profile. Yeah. Um, but the off flavors we often see, um, the, the, there are basically three major ones we see. We see um, ethyl acetate, so real solventy yeah. kind of bordering on smelling like nail polish right. in, in the extreme case. Um, sulfur compounds, usually like a hydrogen sulfide type thing. That doesn't worry me as much because that tends to dissipate with time. Uh, and then finally, acetic acid. Those are yeah. those are like the big three in terms of off flavors that we see. Um, then it's ba- it, those are all kind of not necessarily usable for right. the most part. Um, the other nuances are around um, kind of astringency, um, you know, balance, acidity level, that kind of thing are, are the other kind of factors that come in. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit more about that in a sec. Uh, you know, but first, great beers are made from select ingredients with BSG. You'll bring the world to your brew house with an unparalleled and diverse selection of ingredients from across the globe to just down the road. Their dedicated customer service team and industry experience provide you with the assistance you need every step of the way. Let BSG be your supplier of choice for products essential to making great artisanal beverages so you can stay focused on your craft. For more information, visit them at bsgcraftbrewing.com or call one 800 Three seven four two seven three nine. Also, this episode is brought to you by craftbeer.com, whose mission is to tell the stories behind America's small and independent breweries and the cities and businesses that support them. Uh, so I'm curious a little bit about this process. As you taste these barrels down the road and uh, as they age, how do you make uh, uh, decisions then about... Uh, say what goes into a beer that you may add fruit to what mm-hmm. goes into your, you know, cool shipper sorghum, you know, uh, straight unfruited, uh, uh, blends. Uh, do you pull from multiple years in that blending process? Do you keep it, uh, you know, you know, more brewing year focused? Uh, you know, what, what's some of that blending strategy look like for you? Yeah. Um, so w- you know, we, the one it's, it's complicated. It takes a bunch of several months, uh, each year, uh, over time to kind of get ready for that. Um, the one thing that does make it a little easier is we do it all at the same time frame. So, um, when I say time frame, summertime into early fall. So we, we really, um, are only doing one batch of research. So you're brewing in the winter and then you're, uh, you're working on these in the summertime. work to to be a nice cadence where emptying barrels and, uh, late July through, uh, uh, you know, September and then brewing into October and November. So, uh, and so we've kind of moved to one resurgum packaging a year and then fruit. We're using only exclusively local Maine freshly picked fruit. So yeah. that, of course, limits us to basically Harvest July and sure. August. Yeah. Um, so that makes it a little simpler because it's like there's a time of year where um, we're, we're selecting these barrels. Um, and, uh, you know, with there is a little bit of a scaffold that we've set around it. Uh, typically, fruit beers are usually two year um barrels okay um and so really and re- realistically that's not really two years it might be so it, we're brewing in the fall and selecting in the summer so almost two years yeah um we just found that that's a point where the acidity is where we want it to be um, maybe it's not the difference between two and three is are those differences are 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 more nuanced um, okay. you know more rounded flavors uh you know uh, more gentle flavors. So the three year ends up getting used a lot in resurgum and two year for the most part is pulled from, from, uh, yeah. for fruit. Um, and then the, the resurgum is, this is these, like the rough guidelines I start with is 50% three year, 25% two year and 25% one year. Yeah. Uh, and you know, we don't, that we don't stick to that exclusively, but that gives a scaffold to start with. Sure. Um, for selecting the one year barrels, it's probably the simplest because we're really just, I'm just looking for a clean, free of off flavors, young beer. Yeah. And that 20, 25% is really only there for healthy yeast and a little bit of uh, fermentable sugar. Yeah. Because, um, you know, we bottle condition everything and Resurgum is the only beer that we do not add a secondary yeast to. 
okay. at packaging. So, you know, we really want to maintain that as a hundred percent spontaneous beer. So we need that young beer for healthy yeast. Otherwise it won't, it won't ferment. Yeah. Um, and then the two, two year is, is there, you know, the acidity is mostly developed and then the three year is really what makes, uh, those resurgent, the resurgent beer so kind of well-rounded in the end. Yeah. Are there, uh, you know, specific uh, odd barrels that have popped up that you've enjoyed the flavor and done special things with them or uh yeah a little bit uh, honestly not a lot just because yeah. um you know just having enough stock to do the, the projects we have currently yeah um but uh, we've done a few uh like we had a beer we released once called Cool Ship Single Barrel One. I think we thought we'd have Single Barrel Two and Three. And we haven't, but <laughs> not yet. Um, we did uh, Cool Ship Claremont, which is uh, in bourbon barrels, which oh. um, which was pretty distinctive, as you can imagine. You yeah. Because typically we're using neutral uh, French wine, right. French oak barrels. Um, so it, you know, it's something I'd like to do a little bit more of now that uh, you know we have a little bit more stock. Yeah. Um, we certainly did. Uh, the, a friendship blend, uh, which is the beer we did with Cantillon and Russian River. Yeah, um, that sele- we selected some barrels for for right, that. Right, um, and I hope I don't get in trouble for this, but we are doing that again. That's what I've heard. Okay, you've heard, so maybe uh, I won't get in trouble. I for mean, it, it's but. probably not public knowledge yet, but uh, but Vinny's been he's been talking about that. Yeah, yeah so, so we're yeah. we're super excited. We've been talking with Jean about doing it yeah. again, uh, and we were just over in Belgium uh, about a month ago and. He finally said, right, "If we're going to do it, we got to do it." And so it'll be next year's yeah. contestants on May first uh, in twenty twenty was when when the event will take place in Belgium. And for those folks that don't know that you know, Wild Friendship Blend is a three way blend between Russian River, Allagash, and Cantillon. Um, you know, and you what produce a beer at each one of those three locations and release it. You know, in a three year. Uh, you know, yeah, year we haven't year. sorted all the details out yeah. this time, but last time we you know we sent. Both uh, Russian River and Allagash sent beer over there for the blend for the event. Uh, yeah. And really, the beer is only available at the event. It's right. a pretty small, small blend. And then uh, Jean returns the favor and sends us some yeah. beer, and, and we blend it stateside to do a second kind of U.S. version of it. Right. Um, sounds kind Obviously, of a very fun project. Yeah. yeah, sure. Let's talk about how you uh, add the add fruit to those uh, uh, Lambic-inspired uh, spontaneous beers. Um, how do you select fruit? Think about fruit, and then what does that process look like for uh, for getting good results mm-hmm. out of that fruit? Are you fruiting in barrel using steel tanks? Does it change depending on which fruit you're using? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, what, how wh- over the years of you doing it, what what has given you the best results? Yeah, we've we've done it uh, lots and lots of different ways over yeah. the years, but we've we what we've really moved towards uh, is almost all of our fruiting occurs in stainless steel tanks. Okay, kind of. Uh, and this is for spontaneous uh, cool ship beers, but also other. We do a bunch of other uh, wild beers that we're fruiting as yeah. well. Um, so we're typically adding the. In most cases, they're adding the fruit kind of when the beer is kind of done, if you will. So yeah. you know, obviously fermented, but also uh, the acidity level is kind of where we're pretty happy with it. Uh, and then the fruiting is in stainless for kind of as short as we can get away with. Now that's still two or three months because um, we we want the fermentation to to occur. We want full extraction of the flavor but uh, we've found that uh, keeping it on the fruit too long uh, can have some adverse effects over time yeah um, so we we've been really moving towards shorter and shorter times but st- we're still talking only two or three months yeah um, but we have uh, there temperature variances or is there a process of research or you know what, what does that look like so what we've for the most part what we're doing um, we're, we're, we're adding uh, the fruit, if we can, to an empty tank yeah. uh, and then putting the beer in on top of it afterwards. Now, that's not always possible because we're dealing with local small farmers and um, they're wonderful to work with and they know what we want. And what we want is fruit pe- picked at the absolute peak, like yeah. when it's about to fall off the tree or the bush, um, just as, you know, as, as ripe, as sweet as can be, but like the verge of rotting if you <laughs> sure, don't sure. add it right away so the challenge is you know yeah, we, we'll yeah. get a call from the farmer you know when he's in route sure. basically so we gotta we gotta <laughs> act fast so um yeah. so sometimes we'll have to add to the top of the tank we have okay. ports on all of these tanks but we're using um f- the larger tanks uh are 60 and 9 30 60 and 90 barrel horizontal dairy tanks oh, okay that um you know either dairy or milk or ice cream tanks from the 50s sure uh and they're the geometry of them is really nice so that you can uh the contact 
fruit to beer contact is yeah. really nice because it's long and and shallow. Okay. Um, and so we've we've done some experimentation with recirculating, but honestly haven't seen a big improvement in extraction of flavor. Yeah. So we really aren't doing that very often. We have some smaller tanks that are kind of. I guess you yeah, if, if you're looking at a horizontal tank, even if stuff settles, then it's still giving you a wider contact exactly, area yeah. versus a kind of conical where you know, yep. it's going to gather. Exactly. Yeah, okay. And then we've got some smaller uh, mobile tanks that probably a lot of breweries have seen before, where you know it's a roughly you know seven hundred fifty five hundred to seven hundred fifty gallon vessels, and those are quite handy for fruiting as well. Yeah. Because you've got a big manway up top you got a manway down below you get a screen inside it um all those things because adding fruit to an oak barrel is just awful i mean it's a pain <laughs> to get it in it's a pain to get it out the barrel is kind of forever a fruit barrel it's yeah. no going back to other non-fruit uses after that so and it's funny because i've i've as i've been uh, through the brewery saw you uh, adding uh, some of those local raspberries uh, into a barrel that's uh, probably three years ago yeah and, yeah uh, and we still do it if we do it it's going to be like a small scale like okay yeah, yeah. new fruit um we've never worked with before right um would throw it in a barrel. We just got some hard kiwis, like these little mini kiwis. Huh. I didn't even know they grew in Maine, but we just yeah. used those last year. And so that was just like a small, we got, you know, we got 40 pounds of them. Yeah. And so that, that is not practical to do in a larger tank. So sure. in that case, we'll do it in a barrel. What's uh, what are some of your favorite fruits to work with and why? <sighs> you know, classic fruits for me. I mean, uh, tart cherries yeah. are just one of my favorites. We have two varieties we work with that are both grown in Maine. Um, Montmorency and Balaton, they're both, they're both produce really interesting, very different characteristics. Yeah. I actually like the blend of both of them if we can right. use both in this, in the beer. Cause the Montmorency is very kind of cinnamon allspice, whereas the Balaton is much more like classic pie cherry kind of aroma. Yeah. Um, and the blend of them is, is just really nice. So cherries would have to be kind of one of my, one of my favorites. Yeah. Um, we've had a lot of fun with peaches as well uh, doing a series of beers with peaches um, we, because we're using almost exclusively Maine fruits we don't get all we don't get that exotic really um, you know because Maine doesn't with hard winters we don't even a, something like a blackberry uh, we have to go outside of the state to get those because yeah. um, they don't overwinter here so we don't get any real funky fruits um, because uh, we, it's not like a hard set rule that we'll never use fruit from Maine <laughs> sure, uh, other sure. than Maine but for the most part we're using Maine fruit there's wonderful stuff here so yeah, yeah. we use it if we can let's talk uh, about uh, you know another thing that you are, are, are known for now uh, and that's Brett beers not necessarily spontaneous and and, and those uh, heavily acidic beers but beers that uh, you know you've been playing with with Brett uh, I think last year at the Great American Beer Festival I stopped by and you poured me a, a little bit of your Pilsner with Brett. Mm -hmm. uh, it was one of my favorite beers of the festival. Um, just so light and such a delicate Brett flavor, um, you know, and that's complemented that that you know so pale uh, you know beer, but just you know with that just nice little hint of Brett. It wasn't overpowering. It wasn't uh, wasn't any of the horse blankets or uh, you know typical kind of cliche descriptors. You know, they come from Brett. How uh, how do you envision these kinds of beers, and what have you found in, in working with Britannomyces that uh, you know um, has kind of informed some of the ways that you're pushing and using it in, in ways that haven't been used, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, in a large scale by breweries before? Yeah, I mean, we love working with Britannomyces. I mean, I guess I should say we love it and we hate it. I yeah. mean, it's it's a pain. It definitely has a lot of challenges to it um, with the way it the way it can be slow, the way it can, uh, you know, ferment things that you're not expecting it to and so on. But the flavor profile is, is you know, you're not going to achieve that from even some of the most uh, intensely ester uh, yeasts that are out there. So um, we kind of used it in a lot of different ways. I mean, it's obviously in our spontaneous fermentation sure, beers. Sure. But, you know, with 100% Brett ferments, we've done some great work. We've done some mixed fermentations with it. Uh, and then the Pilsner with Britannomyces, which actually we've, we've, we've re it's, we're brewing that beer again this year, but it's under a different name. Cause that was kind of a, yeah. a trial one right. thing. So that's going to be called true penny Pilsner, but same, same basic idea. Um, in that case, we're actually doing two different ferments. Um, so a, a lager fermentation and a bread fermentation of the same wort stream and then blending them together post fermentation, huh. which obviously, as you can imagine, has a a number of challenges to yeah, it yeah yeah but what we like about it is it it lets us kind of uh 
you know, lager yeast can be slow and brett yeast can be so, but if by co-fermenting them, we found that you really get almost an overabundance of, of brett character. You get a brett beer that yeah. maybe has a base of a pilsner. It what outcompetes we, the... What we really want yeah. is a pilsner that's got some notes of Britannomyces. So, right. Um, so that, that's been a fun project for us where we're... And, and what we hope with that beer is that if you're a if you're a Britannomyces lover, you you love it because you can get those characteristics. But if you're if you're not necessarily, uh, which you know, there's plenty of consumers out there who don't even you know you put bread on the name, they don't know what the heck that right, means. Right. So for those, nor people, should they have to know. No. I mean, we can geek out on that kind yeah. of thing. But if so you enjoy for those it, people, yeah. it's still you know people can you know meet that beer where they're at and, and right. still enjoy it. Right. Um, Let's talk a little bit about that dual stream thing. How does that, um, you know, I mean, Brad, of course, is notorious for being able to eat through anything. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how do you manage that uh, in a way that doesn't create uh, unexpected sure. uh, uh, developments later on in the process? Yeah, we, we, we tried it a number of different ways, um, but what we've kind of settled on with this particular beer is uh, after the fer uh, fermentation, the Brett fermentation, we are... Um, centrifuging the Britannomyces out and following that centrifuge with a filtration, which oh. we don't filter very much at the yeah, brewery. But, yeah. um, so it's a cartridge filtration. So it's not sterile filtration, but it's it's effectively in terms of removing Brett, it is. Okay. It's able to remove all the cells. Um, so wow. just the Britannomyces portion gets filtered out. So uh, And then, of course, we have to very closely monitor that filtration and afterwards to make sure it was effective right? because it doesn't, doesn't take more than a couple of cells of Britannomyces <laughs> to cause some problems. Right. Um, the beer is already pretty dry as it is, right, so that right. helps. But um, but that's, the filtration is a big part of that. Yeah. Are there specific uh, Brett strains uh, you know that you uh, you know choose and select or develop, or are you using your own uh, in order to uh, accomplish the kind of uh, flavors you're looking for? And how do you use how do you think about those different Brett strains mm -hmm. as you're envisioning using them in specific beers? Yeah, we we use um, a number of different Brett strains. The majority of our brett fermentations are with what we call our house brett or also referred to around the brewery as brett michaels that was its nickname <laughs> from the very beginning so that that is a yeast we found kind of like other breweries have as well like kind of by accident in, yeah. in a beer way back in like 2003 uh and we isolated it well actually at the time we had we had a yeast supplier isolated for us because we were we just didn't yeah, have the capabilities yeah. at the time uh and have just have it banked with them we now bank it ourselves at the brewery but we use that strain in a lot of a lot of our beers just because it's a it's personal to us. We really like the character, very sure. um, very tropical, uh, in you know more pineapple driven than kind of classic horse blanket. Yeah, um, but we use a lot of other strains as well, commercially available strains. The one thing you know that we found is you know a strain by the same name from one place to another is it's like a, it's a totally different thing so <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. so we've now uh we've now got a bank of a couple different strains at the brewery that may have originated in other places that we were able to use uh, yeah. pretty effectively but interesting so don't trust the brett brand name uh that's been our experience okay. yeah yeah talk to me about some of the the varieties of of uh, uh and and how you envision the the flavors in those uh, and, and what they produce. I mean, you mentioned pineapple in yeah. yours. Um, you know, what are uh, what are some of the other varieties and, and uh, you know some of uh, the flavors that those produce for you? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we're typically looking for. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying we're trying to avoid the the really intense kind of funky stuff. Yeah. We're typically looking for more of that tropical fruit character. So. You know, something like a Brett C, I guess, would be another one yeah. that would be one that we'd like to work with. But, but again, like, um, you know, I almost have to go to a specific supplier uh, yeah. name to tell you which ones we really like, sure, just because, sure. you know, Brett C at one place is very different than Brett C at another place. Yeah. Um, what do you, uh, are you, uh, you know, building malt? Uh, uh, malts in specific ways in order to feed Brett or you, what kind of uh, temperatures do you use? Uh, you know, what, what do you use to kind of uh, like turn the knobs mm -hmm. on Brett to, to get some of these different results? We, we don't do any uh, other than with a spontaneous fermentation yeah. beer, which is of course a complex multi-step step program, you know, m mostly designed to provide long-term uh, feed food for, yeah. for Britannomyces yeah. specifically. Um, so in that case, you know, the, the mash is looking to pull all sorts of complex sugars sure. and starches and so on. 
other than that, we're doing pretty traditional mashing for the rest of those beers. Yeah. But ingredient selection, certainly, you know, we'll, we, we often will use some type of raw wheat, raw rye, uh, et cetera, um, in upper Tanamyces beer. Yeah. One, one for for food for the long, you know, some starches there available for the long term, but also it helps to provide some some body to what ends up being a very very dry beer in the end. Right, right. Yeah. Temperature. How does that how does that impact your Brett fermentations? Yeah, I mean, uh, very strain dependent, of course. But yeah. our house Brett, we tend to ferment pretty warm. You yeah. know, seventy to eighty Fahrenheit, um, and you know, kind of the warmer the better. It yeah. seems, um, you know, really we don't see any real uh, downside to, to those higher temperature fermentations. Let's shift gears again and talk about uh, some of the other directions that Allagash is going in. You mm-hmm. all are, uh, are definitely, uh, you know, have been on an innovation path and producing more new beers over the last two or three years than uh, than maybe the you know few years before that. Um, talk to me about some of the interesting new projects that you guys have coming and uh, how you've envisioned them and, and uh, you know, some of these new beers that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that we're now uh, being able to drink more of. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, we certainly have stepped up, uh, increased our number of new beers in a given year. Um, and that's, you know, a couple things. One, it's what the consumer wants, right? We're, so it's a great time for us as creative brewers to, to be able to create new stuff because that's what that's what really the consumer sure. wants. We also have brand you know, lifetime is starting to shrink yeah, a little bit, uh, yeah, which but. I you know th- I don't necessarily love that, sure, but sure. I do love the uh, the fact that consumers are really looking for new flavors. We also our our tasting room uh, continues to just get more and more traffic through yeah. it, and so that's proved to be such a wonderful venue for us to you know to to even can a beer or bottle a beer. And we can sell through a batch in that space, which we really couldn't do three or four or five years ago. So right. it gives us the freedom to, to make something on the smaller side and, and still be able to sell it. So, and really, I, I mentioned the pilot team earlier. I, I can't, I can't, I could talk for an hour on that alone <laughs> just because the program is really, yeah, really where all that stuff's coming from. And, you know, at, you know, at the majority of our new beers are coming from, uh, employees all throughout the company. Yeah. Who, How does you know, that look like they just, they have an idea mm-hmm. and even if they're not brewers, they have an idea for flavor and exactly. what that profile might look like. And they, you know, ha- where's, where's it go from there? Yeah. So we, we have a team, we call the pilot team, uh, which is made up of, um, that team is mostly made up of experienced, um, either brewers currently for us or, you know, uh, say, uh, we got an individual from our, uh, our logistics team who's part of it, but he's a home brewer. Yeah. Uh, same with somebody from our engineering maintenance staff, also a home brewer. So, um, you know, pretty experienced in building recipes and, and that kind of thing. Um, and so everything comes through that team, but the first step is just to fill out a simple Google form and we make it as simple as possible because yeah. we know that, you know, somebody might be submitting an idea that says, okay, this is exactly the ingredients I want to use. This is exactly the process I want to do. But a lot of people are just like, you know, I want to brew a beer that tastes like this. I mean, the, 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 one of the classic examples I use, Jeff, our marketing director, came to us and said, my wife makes this delicious chocolate raspberry cake for me for my birthday every year. Can we make a beer that tastes like that? I mean, that's kind of it's kind of comical, but it's exactly how it happened. And then uh, he came to the pilot team and they worked with him and we ended up with a, you know, a bunch of different malts to get the chocolate character, fresh raspberries, Britannomyces fermentation to get some of those fruit components as well. And and in the end, we have a beer that's actually pretty remarkably, it's called Ganache, that uh, is based on on that. So there's lots of examples like that that yeah. can come from, um, it can be a concept, it can be partially fleshed out recipe and so on. Um, and it really lets us it's a it's it's a wonderful thing for employees. They love it, of course. Yeah, you know, yeah. especially if they're if their day to day isn't brewing beer, and all of a sudden they can spend a day making a beer, tracking fermentation, etc. Um, and you know, just that learning experience that they have. But for us, it also is really where we are able to tap into the creativity of 130 employees instead of you know, one or two or three or four people, uh, which is really kind of been a lot of fun yeah and so that's really where all these these beer ideas are coming from um you know obviously they all need to be kind of nurtured and massaged their way to get to where we want them to be and you know out of you know 70 ish of those pilot batches we're doing a year we might sell 
size up to our, our to our thirty barrel brew house or larger, maybe ten, twelve, yeah, something like that a year. So cool. What's yeah. uh, what's next on the horizon then for uh, for Allagash? For beers, yeah. Uh, let's see. We I mentioned earlier we have no, a noble blonde, which is this you know low low temperature fermentation that just got released. We've got um, following that. Let's see. We've got a beer that's called Brightline, which is um, low low ABV, three and a half percent saison made with some black currant juice. So it's got some acidity to it, but not yeah. you know not uh, not intensely sour, but some nice acidity to it. Uh, dry hop mosaic. Um, after that, we've got uh, another saison, actually saison violette, which will be um, saison fermentation with a blueberry juice added to it as well. So yeah. we're, um, you know, working some some uh, additional angles for it's still bl- main grown blueberries. Sure, but, sure. So in that case, blueberries uh, don't because it's added for fermentation. So lots of color. Uh, some subtle aromas and subtle flavors, but the you know the classic blueberry aroma and flavor that people think of isn't necessarily in that beer because it ferment, huh. it ferments out. Blueberries are one of those weird fruits right. that doesn't sustain itself long term the way a cherry or a raspberry does. Yeah, are there any other uh, uh, brewing ideas or themes that uh, you're really excited about pursuing uh, over the next year? Yeah, I mean, I I, I mentioned earlier the the. Um, Lager saison blend and the Pilsner saison blend or Pilsner uh, Pretendomyces blend. Yeah. I'm super excited about those beers yeah. just because they're delicious and you know we're brewers, so we love. I mean, we love sure. to drink a nice crisp lager, but it doesn't necessarily align with you know Belgian inspired brewing traditions. So sure, we figure out our way to to get at that by uh, yeah. adding yeah. some really unique, uh, subtle Belgian kind of classic Belgian aromas, whether it's Pretendomyces or Saison kind of spiciness. So uh, I'm pretty excited about those, and I think more of those kind of things to come. Uh, it sounds interesting. I've been hearing a lot of brewers talking about these kind of parallel fermentations and then you know, then ending in blends uh, across a whole bunch of different styles. Uh, it's been an interesting subject of conversation over the last two weeks. Uh, yeah, Kind of fascinating to see you all going in the same direction. Yeah. Cool. Uh, well, uh, let's uh let's wrap it up thanks for talking to me on the podcast today jason uh before we get out of here uh i just want to offer some uh, thanks to the sponsors that made it possible gnd chillers leads the way on custom innovative solutions ss brewtech is advancing brewing equipment design performance and quality let bsg supply you with an unparalleled and diverse selection of ingredients and craftbeer.com's mission is to tell the stories behind america's small and independent breweries jason perkins of allagash brewing if people want to learn more about allagash uh, where do they find you guys well i can you know find us at allagash.com of course and all the social media outlets yeah uh and you should if you're anywhere near portland maine you got to come see us uh great little tasting room killer tours so i ever changing rotation of beers so come see us for sure for sure i've been there a number of times now and it's always a, a delicious and uh opening experience yeah thanks jason cheers Thank this podcast is brought to you by craft beer and brewing magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.com.